put these people who did these things onto some massive pedestal. They are just like you. And if you wait around for the thing you want changing for someone else to do it, it might have meant to be you. Yeah. You know, Rosa Parks didn't go, someone else will sit up on this bus. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. somebody else will probably make this argument and start the entire civil rights movement. It's probably you. If you really feel strongly about something and want to change it, it's probably you who's going to do it. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of The Story of Woman. In today's world, it can feel like change is happening, but only in the wrong direction. While we agree there's still a lot of work to do, we're reframing that story. I'm your host, Anna Steckline, and each episode of this season, I'll be exploring how women make change happen from those at the top helping to drive it. We'll look at where we are in this long march to equality, what lies ahead, and how important you are in the fight. This isn't a story of a world that's doomed to oppress women forever. This is a story of an opportunity to grow stronger than ever before, exactly as womankind has always done. Hello and welcome back. Thanks so much for being here. We've got another conversation with an elected leader this week. This time I'm speaking with UK Member of Parliament, Jess Phillips. Jess is a Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley and is also a Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding. So as you'll hear us talk about today, much of her work centers around men's violence against women, domestic abuse, sexual and reproductive health, childcare, and maternal and paternal rights. And not so fun fact, every year for International Women's Day, Jess reads out the names of women in the UK that were killed by men in the year since the last International Women's Day. And while we don't go into any detail, there is mention of sexual violence and rape in this episode. So for anyone that might be sensitive to that, just a heads up. Jess is incredibly outspoken and fierce in her determination to better the lives of women and girls, which will absolutely come across in this interview today. And personally, I find it incredibly refreshing how she just tells it like it is. God, I think we need a lot more of that. You'll know what I mean very shortly. And I actually toured Westminster recently and got to shadow Jess for part of the day because... Apparently, here in the UK, it's just incredibly easy to do that. I sent an email, arranged a time, and then showed up about a week later. So it was really easy and super cool to get to see behind the scenes. But just to really paint a picture of how fierce of an advocate Jess is on these issues and just how long and hard she has been working on it. When I went in that day, there was this other woman who walked up the stairs with me to Jess's office. And when we got there, they hugged and talked and they were clearly old friends that went way back. So they were catching up and talking business. And then they started talking about this actress in a movie that I guess had represented this woman that I had walked in with. And they were talking about if they thought that this actress portrayed the woman well. And after the woman left, I said to Jess, I was like, who was that? I have to ask, who was that? And what movie was she being portrayed in? And she told me, and I'm not going to name this woman just for privacy, even though this is all public knowledge, but just to keep it private. But she said, that's the woman who filed the initial lawsuit against Harvey Weinstein for years of sexual assault that she endured while she worked for him. She filed that lawsuit when she was like, 23 years old or something, and then of course was promptly fired and forced to sign an NDA. And she then spent like the next 25 years or so fighting him. And as we all know, thanks to her and people like Jess Phillips, who have been working on the inside, changing policies and laws, Harvey is now in prison. Not that the work is done, that system that enabled him to do this for decades to hundreds of women still very much exists. In fact, that day that we were in the office, they were both talking about these NDAs that still exist in the government and what they could do about them. So here this woman was, you know, two and a half decades later, still meeting with politicians, talking about ways to improve the system and protect girls and women in ways that she wasn't protected all those years ago. And not just talking about it, but 
doing something, you know, actually making these changes happen alongside Jess and other politicians and advocates. So that was really, really cool to see that in action. And the movie, by the way, was She Said, which I haven't watched yet, but I did read the book, which is about the New York Times journalists Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor's work publishing that report that exposed Harvey's sexual abuses back in 2017. But anyway, Jess is amazing. And in our conversation today, you'll hear us talk about what it's like to work for the government, why Jess decided to run for office in the first place, what she likes about it, what she finds challenging both as a person, but also as a woman advocating for women, because as we know, that doesn't always go over so well in male-dominated spaces. We talk about her work with men's violence against women, and we also talk about how important politics is in all of our personal lives, from decisions about how long our work weeks are, to what we can do with our own uteruses, and even to if people can kiss on boats. <laughs> that will make sense very shortly, I promise. But all of this is happening inside of these government buildings. All of these decisions are being made inside of the government buildings, which is why we need more women inside of them and more people that support women to vote for those who have women's interests in mind and at heart. So hopefully this provides a, a little motivation as well. If anybody's thinking about running for office, we could use more of you and more people like Jess who are fierce in their determination and improving the lives of girls and women. All right, that's all for now. Please enjoy my conversation with Jess Phillips. Hello, Jess. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. So to start, I just want to have you kind of set the scene for us and describe what the job of an MP or a member of parliament is for our non-UK listeners, but probably also a bit for our UK listeners as well. It is very different in the UK to how it is elsewhere in the world, no doubt about it. I mean, the things that are the same of every representative, elected representative, is that you are there to make legislation. You are there to write laws, change laws on behalf of your constituents and their experiences in their lives. And that happens, obviously, in Parliament. But that's a tiny fraction of my job. I only do that for three days a week where I'm in London, not in my constituency. The difference between an elected British Member of Parliament and elsewhere in the world is that we are much more directly engaged. I mean, some aren't. I mean, some don't bother, obviously. <laughs> but we're much more directly engaged in the lives of our constituents. So I represent, obviously, it's smaller than, for example, in the US, where you'll, you'll be representing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people if you're in Congress. I represent about 150,000 people. Every single day that I'm in Birmingham, so today, I spend my day in an office or out on the streets with them in their schools. In They come into my office all through the day. So I'm a bit like a social worker. So today, for example, I will handle cases of people who are homeless, cases of people whose children haven't got a school place, people who can't get access to the right health care. So part of my job is a lawmaker. Part of my job is community worker, social worker. And then the other part of my job is about campaigning. And all members of parliament, pretty much, apart from the really rubbish ones, will have like specific campaigning targets that they are working towards that aren't necessarily about their political persuasion or even their constituency necessarily, although it will be part of that. And mine is always around violence against women and girls and men's violence in society and generally the equality agenda. So, you know, I spend a lot of my time as well as doing those other two jobs, being a feminist activist and others will be like, you know, blood cancer activists or they'll be activists for road safety or whatever it is. But most members of parliament have this sort of third wheel to their job, which you do in both other parts of your job. 
but you have to sort of play that furrow as well. It's a time-consuming job, that's for sure. Time-consuming job with a lot of different hats. I got a kick out of the one anecdote you said in your book that you had a woman come to your office with a spider in a jar because she wanted you to find an anecdote for its bite. So all all kinds. And it was a house spider. It was I mean, in a way, I did find an antidote for its bite in that it doesn't bite you and it's not dangerous. Uh, so, you know, I feel like I had a roaring success in this case. But yeah, the amount that people think and this is definitely a British issue at the moment I I can't speak to other places but so many services that used to exist have gone and so in my constituency in the area that I represent I'm like the last advice centre left and so people will come to you about absolutely everything including whether they need me to help them get the antidote for spiders. People think that I'm a doctor often. <laughs> People think that I'm a lawyer. Uh, I'm neither of those things. People will genuinely come to me about their health concerns and I'm like that. Um, <laughs> I, I really think you need to see a doctor because I've got no professional training whatsoever. I'm not, I can't even do first aid. <laughs> Marvelous, marvelous. You know, you're not too busy. You can just add that to the list. You know, why not? Yeah, I'll, just, I'll just become a pediatric surgeon as well. Minor, minor. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your story getting into politics, because as you point out in your book, The Life of an MP, which is a fantastic look inside of Westminster and really inside of politics as a whole. But as you point out, so many members of parliament come from backgrounds of immense privilege, a lot of them going to the same elite school, following the same kind of path into politics where the money and the risk that it takes to pursue that career isn't really a barrier. Yeah, that's true. Whereas you, on the other hand, had not gone to these same elite schools. And at the time, you were working at a local women's charity as a city councillor, and you had two small kids, a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. So I'd love to hear about your decision to run, but also can you help us understand just how much you break that mold of your average member of parliament? Whilst there is a huge amount of elitism in well politics here and around the world, if you just look at the current cabinet at the moment, you'd see that I think it's 70% of them went to fee-paying private schools. And that just it doesn't marry up with the nation, That's which is 7%. Wow. And yeah, it's quite out of <laughs> quite culture. A discrepancy. Ver- seven versus 70. But there are lots of other people like me who've taken similar paths. They do tend to be much more likely to be Labour members of parliament or some of the other opposition. Sorry, just to cut in, Labour is the more liberal side of the Yeah, well, the Labour Party had to be made to exist. The Conservative Party has always existed since the beginning of time. It might have been called something different. But essentially, the Labour Party had to be invented by the workers to represent something different in politics over 100 years ago. But if the Labour Party didn't exist today, it would have to be made to exist. So naturally, you're going to have fewer people from elite backgrounds representing a party that was invented by workers. And so quite a lot of Labour members over the years have come through the union movement, as you might imagine. I mean, there are absolutely Conservative members of Parliament who are working class, who've come from working class backgrounds. So I don't want to deride them. But the main problem with getting a greater pool of people into Westminster is that it is incredibly high bar and high risk for people and it costs quite a lot of money whether you have that money to initially put in which obviously the vast majority of people in the country don't have 50 60 grand going spare on a whim that it might be 50 50 to run in an election and i certainly didn't have that money but for me it wasn't so much the sort of initial outlay it was the loss of income so to win a marginal seat as i did so my seat wasn't a labor party seat we flipped it in the election and for me to win that meant a huge amount of work and effort we don't have big money in politics in the same way as in other parts of the world so i wasn't given any finance or resource to do that and so you have to work incredibly hard and that just meant that for me i had to work part-time losing my family's income my husband who was a night shift worker at the time had to stop being a night shift worker which he was paid a premium for so Just even in one year of campaigning for the two and a half years that I campaigned to be elected in the seat, 
it would cost us £10,000 a year in lost income just from my husband because I had to then work nights because I had to work in the day and work then do the campaigning and all that stuff on the nights and the weekends and that just when you've got small kids there's just not a possibility especially we're young parents and so our parents were still working it's not even like we could just dump our kids on somebody else and even if we could that wouldn't have been all that helpful you can't rely on that in the same way that you might be able to rely on paid childcare, which we certainly couldn't have afforded on top of it and so it was a massive massive risk having said all of that on the day before the election when i won the polling said that it was 50 50 whether i would win I mean, I'd buy a lottery ticket on those odds, but I might not stake <laughs> my entire life on them. But I, yet I did. But having said all that, I didn't find it a particularly difficult decision to make to do, actually. Partially out of ignorance. <laughs> I don't think I knew that it was going to cost quite so much money or be quite such an uphill battle. And maybe if I had known, maybe I would have given it more thought. To be honest, I just felt like the whole way through, like, if you want it, you just got to keep on going. And yes, it's going to be hard work. And yes, there is risk. I mean, and I'm still in a much more privileged position than lots and lots of people. Lots of people wouldn't be able to take that risk. Like, you know, had I lost my home, I wouldn't have been homeless, for example. I could have lived with my dad, my parents-in-law, you know, we wouldn't have been on the street. So it's a sort of calculated risk. And there are other people who wouldn't be in that position. But I mean, I could have lost my home. That's for sure that could have happened. I mean, literally my husband, a man rang me from the Labour Party and said, would you consider running? And I was like, I shouted downstairs to my husband, they're saying that maybe I should be a member of parliament. And uh, <laughs> he, and my husband literally just went, yeah, that that, that stacks up. That, and that, that was sort of the level of decision making Casual. that we made about it. Oh my gosh. It, once I was selected, because it's all such a Hail Mary. Mm. You know, at that point, you're like, oh, go on, then I'll give it a whirl. And then you've got to get yourself selected to run for that. It's just, I suppose, a bit, a bit like the US primaries, but it's not anywhere near as bad as that. And then at the stage when you've actually been selected and are going to be running in the election, which that took like eight months or something for that process to be gone through and for me to win that process. At that stage, on the day I was selected, I did think, oh, my God, I really think we maybe should have thought about the childcare a bit more or like, you know, how is this actually going to work? And the prospect of living away from my family became very real and something that we then thought about a lot and how we would manage that. But yeah, before we made the decision for me to run to be the candidate, I, I can't say that we gave it all that much thought. Uh, you know, a delightful character flaw that has benefited me for much of my career is not giving things much thought. Uh, and I recognise that for lots of people that that's a privileged position to be in. Mm-hmm. You may not have given it all that much thought or, you know, acted, maybe some people would say impulsively, but there was clearly something there that drove you. So what were kind of your reasons? You know, you wrote in the book, one of the reasons being that you wanted to change the world. Like what's kind of at your core of why you wanted to get into. And it sounds a bit naff, doesn't it? (laughs) As I wrote in the book, it makes me sound a bit like Miss World. Has a Miss World ever achieved world peace yet? That's, I mean, that, that is definitely, it's not, it's not up for debate. I think the answer is no. <laughs> I did want to change the world. And, uh, you know, it sounds naff in a way, but, you know, I think that the vast majority of people in the world feel that way. Yeah. I don't want it to be represented that it's entirely altruistic. It's quite arrogant to think that you could change the world. I am a person of immense self-belief and confidence to a nauseating level. (laughs) Somebody once told me this is a genuine syndrome that they call Jerusalem syndrome, that when people go to visit the sort of fractious nature of the conflict between Israel and Palestine, that they believe that they could solve it when they're there. Like, And I definitely had that the last time I was there. I was thinking maybe I should just move to the region. I remember when they wouldn't let women be bishops in the Church of England. I'm literally not even baptised, not christened. 
before I was a member of parliament, I'd never been to a church service. I don't believe in God. I was just like, I'm just going to have to do this. I'm just going to have to become a bishop because they won't let women become bishops. I love that. But, you know, there is a certain sort of tapped nature to in my nature that makes me think I'm the solution to every problem. Like the idea that I wanted to save the world is a genuine self-belief that I had an opportunity to do that, that I could change the world. I don't wish to sort of overplay or underplay how important that is. But yeah, that's the reason I wanted to do it. I wanted a better job as well. And I don't think you're allowed to say that, are you? But it like tripled my income. <laughs> and that's okay. Like I wanted to earn more money and I wanted to have a career for life that I could have security forever. And I basically was doing the same job that I do now in the voluntary sector, like I was changing government policy, I was supporting people. So I was doing the exact same job. I got paid a lot less and less fewer people listened to me and I had less power to do it on a bigger scale. And so it's just sort of a bit like a natural progression, really. And there were loads and loads of women in the country who will be doing exactly that. They will be doing the work that other people like me then take credit for, <laughs> politicians who say that they change the world. And actually, in reality, the vast amount of work is being done by ordinary people who get paid less. <laughs> not great, is it? <laughs> Mm-mm. Well, I think it's fabulous that that part of yourself that just sees a problem and sees yourself as the solution. And also that you have goals of changing the world. You know, what if every politician wanted to change the world? You know, unfortunately, the stigma, at least, and I'm sure, you know, there's all types, but is that there's two types of politicians, right? Those who want to change the world and those who want just the power and the privilege for themselves. So yeah, yeah. I think it's okay if you want to make more and you want to better your own life. But if that underlying main reason that you're doing it is, is to change the world, that's a beautiful thing and we need more of that. Oh, yeah. Also, I just saw that people were doing it dreadfully. I can't bear <laughs> Bloody practice. <laughs> Specifically in the field that I was working in of women's refuges and sexual violence services, I would watch politicians not know what they were talking about. And I just thought, oh, I can't bear incompetence. <laughs> Usually my solution, foolishly, to incompetence is just, oh, well, I'll just do this myself then. And every woman in the world almost certainly has gone, oh, for God's sake, just give it to me. I'll bloody do it. So it was, you know, a mixture of those things. I just thought, oh, my God, I can't believe they've let this idiot in be in charge of this. Yeah, yeah. So I'll do it myself. And then we've got all these plates to spin at once. I did try and get some of the other women at Women's Aid to stand as well. So there's a woman called Wendy who I worked with. And I was like, Wendy, she'd been to an electoral hustings. And she was like, God, they didn't know what they were talking about. I said, OK, Wendy, right, well, me and you. Let's do this because we do know what we're talking about. Let's go and be elected. And Wendy put in zero effort. Zero effort. Zero effort zero from Wendy effort. to get herself elected. She's cheering on you from the sideline, I bet, still. Yes, yeah, she, she certainly was they... all the way through. <laughs> I that. You're like, what? I thought we had a pact. Yeah. Come on, Wendy, if you're listening. Come on, Wendy. There's always next year. We need you. <laughs> so I want to talk about some of the campaigns that you champion. But first, I want to talk about the mission that you write about in this book that I've mentioned, Life of an MP, that mission to make politics for everyone, and not just in terms of running for office, Wendy, uh, but also <laughs> for your everyday citizen as well. So what do you mean by politics is personal and why is that your mission? Politics is personal has long been the slogan of the feminist movement, really. People constantly push back on that. Not necessarily the broader philosophy that it's personal to everybody, but the idea, oh, you mustn't take it personally, it's only politics. And it's just like, oh, God, that's so lame. Like, politics is in every single aspect of our lives, and people just have no idea, I think, in the vast majority of cases, from the sort of absolutely tiny minutiae of our lives. I've sat on hours and hours of committee about the use of disposable barbecues, for example, right up to legislation about what I can and can't do with my womb, you know, and who can love who and who can be incarcerated for what. Like These are very serious things. But like in every single element of our life, the people who work in the building where I work have poured over the detail about what the rules should and shouldn't be. So the idea that people should feel like, oh, well, it's not to do with me when everything in your life, the hours you work, the weekend, literally when the sun rises, 
is decided by politics. Obviously, we don't get to decide on the celestial beings. They deal with that themselves. (laughs) However, what we call that time and how we work around it was decided by a series of politicians at some point. The fact that you have to get up at seven to be at work for nine, that wasn't an accident that just happened because of the light. That was decided. The fact that people eat breakfast, lunch and dinner was literally something decided in the war in food policy, like that that was the healthiest way. Your five a day, all of this stuff that people take on board all the time and then industry runs with like how much water you should drink and all that stuff. And then, you know, everywhere I go, there's like thousands of water bottles and people selling different sorts of water. And it's just like, you know, these are things that are put in place in a building like where I work and people think it has nothing to do with them. You know, people are so fundamentally within a system that they often feel they have no control over and in many cases they don't have any control over. And that just seems absolutely flabbergasting to me that people aren't really aware that I wouldn't sit on a committee for ages about whether people could kiss on boats. What? It was specifically the Navy, I think. (laughs) You know, like that is so really specific. tiny things like what you're allowed to eat is decided where I work. Everything, absolutely everything. And if we decided we don't want anybody wearing Breton stripes anymore, that would be totally possible for us to change that. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen. I think there would be a pushback because who doesn't love a striped jersey? But like we could do that. Unbelievable. So it's very personal and it's very personal to women, especially because so many of the things in our lives rely on state actors seeing us. So whether it's the issue of childcare, whether it's our right to fertility or the lack of it, no male organ has ever been discussed as much as a woman's womb in Parliament. It is deeply personal and there are ideologies in buildings like the one where I work that really, really would seek to make my personal decisions about my body for me. If people think that that's not personal, that whether I my life went one way or another was entirely decided in a building, yeah, it's about time people got involved in it because you might want to kiss in boats, wear Brett on tops, you know, burn a million disposable barbecues and have an abortion. And you might not be able to do any of those things if you don't get yourself involved. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And yet it can be so easy to distance ourselves with cynicism and exasperation and saying, oh, what difference is it going to make anyway? But I liked this line in your book. You wrote, when we start to believe that politics is a game played by the rich toffs and crooked, corrupt pigs, then we start to opt out of the system. And when we do that, we hand it to them on a plate. Yeah. And the on- yeah. onus is on us to change the rules of the political game. People think that opting out of politics is an act of defiance, and it isn't. It's an act of surrender. Mm. People say it to me, oh, you know, like, it will be an insult to me. Like, oh, you're all the same. You know, oh, you're not interested in us. And I just think, oh, well, they've won. Well done. You've surrendered. You've surrendered to the system that we've always lived in. And it's my responsibility to make them not feel like that, but it's also their responsibility. I believe that people have responsibility. And yeah, when people think that they're acting defiant against the political system, they're just acting to surrender to the one that we've always had. Yep, yep, keeps the status quo. hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We'll be right back after this short break to hear Jess talk about some of the specific causes she champions. So if politics is personal, and as you've started to lay out the personal issues that touch women, specifically, there's quite a few of them, but yet at the same time, we have massive underrepresentation of women in politics. So you can start to see why there is no real focus and progress with all of these issues that have been 100 plus years in the fight for women. So tell us a little bit about some of the causes that you're champion, and then we can kind of look at what this reality is with women being represented in politics. 
The main cause that I champion is the elimination of men's violence against women. So the major manifestation of that is domestic abuse, sexual violence, rape, trafficking, sexual exploitation and sexual harassment in the public realm and at work. So all of them are essentially the same thing to me. They present as the same thing. Certainly that's not the case for the victims of the individual crimes. They seem very personal. And unfortunately, I have dealt with so many cases in my life now. I mean, I'm talking thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of stories in my career. It's all part of the same issue, and that is about women having less power and control and men using the power to exert control over us. And when that can't be done through negativity or economics, then I'm afraid, like, we go to war, like conflict, an act of control always ends in violence. I mean, actually, what I spend most of my time doing is cleaning up. (laughs) Classic women's job. (laughs) I try and make legislation and services on the ground better for when the bad thing has happened. And that is deeply unambitious. It's a great thing to do and it's the right thing to do. I'm never going to see the end of violence against women and girls in my lifetime. And I'm not naive or idealist enough as I was when I was a kid to think otherwise. I used to want to win the Nobel Peace Prize for banning guns in America. My mum just said you'd be shit. My mum just said, you'll be shot in the first day. So uh, I gave up that after my mum shot me down very quickly. She was like, they'll kill you before you can say anything. I don't think I will ever see the end of this. But what my work at the moment is to do is to try and make it so that when a woman needs to escape, there's somewhere safe for her to go, that the criminal justice system responds to her appropriately, that she's safer going to the police and not going to the police at the moment. I'm afraid to say that most women in our country don't feel that way about our criminal justice services and that women aren't made destitute and their children made destitute when they decide to live free from violence and that the status of a woman in our country, regardless of where she is from, is equal in the eyes of the law with regard to violence against women and girls. Now, none of those things are the case at the moment. Not one of them is the case. Now, there's been marginal improvements over the years to widen access, to make things better. But still, we are nowhere near the idea that if you've got diabetes in the UK, you would absolutely be able to access the preventative measures to stop you ending up in a crisis situation. We're nowhere near that. We're nowhere near that 100%. And so I spent a huge amount of my career trying to make the current, what we'd say, 30% up to 50, which, you know, is deeply unambitious. And so now it has to move on from being just about that. And I will keep working on that for the rest of my life. But it has to be about how you end the fact that women end up in this situation. And you can't do that without women's economic empowerment. Women earn less, women have less power, women have less social power, economic power, everything. And that is why they fall prey to the violence of men. And so the only thing that would ever fundamentally equalise women's safety in their homes, workplaces and the public realm is if they are equal to men. And that is a long, long way off. But that has to be the aim. That has to be the driving goal. It's very easy to get distracted by saying, "Okay, well, I just want everyone to get into a women's refuge. But all I'm doing then is propping up the same system. I want both those things, of course, and they're always going to both have to exist. But the changing of the world bit is that. The other bit is just tidying up the world as it exists. Now, I'll never achieve either of those things in my life, and I've come to terms with that. But So you just have to make marginal steps along the way. I've learned to be much more patient than I was when I was first elected. I'm (laughs) deeply impatient. I'm still quite impatient, and I'm not grateful either. Women, I'm expected to be grateful all the time for... The basics. I'm like, I'm not grateful. They're like, oh, look, we gave you this. Oh, you gave it, you you made it so that now 40% of women rather than 30% of women might have access to a refuge. What do you want? A ticker tape parade? 
Yeah, change is slow. It's a long process. So slow. But this is why we need more of you. We definitely get change faster with better women's representation and women with power at every part of the sort of ecosystem. So parliament, obviously, but also then within civil services, within the departments, whether that's policing or the courts. This all will get better where women are equalising their power within those institutions. And undoubtedly, if you look back to when I was born and today, there are way more women in Parliament and there is way more focus on these issues. It's inarguable that representation matters in that regard. But we're still a lot. I mean, what, we're 30% women in Parliament, in the UK Parliament. One of the really quite far down the pecking order in the world stakes and actually developing countries do way better, Mm. (laughs) weirdly. Mm. (laughs) When the stakes, isn't it, that, you know, in really powerful countries, the power remains where the power always has. Yep. Well, I want to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a woman in Westminster amongst, you know, you're one of 30%. What it's like working in that male-dominated world. And you already gave us a little bit of an illusion when you say you're expected to be grateful for these little things. And you mentioned in your book that you're frequently told you're too emotional, which makes my skin crawl even just now repeating that story. I'm just like, you're not emotional enough. If dead women doesn't make you sad, then you might have a deficiency is my response. I'm like that. I think that you're the one with the problem here if you don't feel emotional about murdered children. I think I'm the normal one. <laughs> I think I'm having uh-huh. the human reaction here. 100%. I was like, that, what's wrong with you, you weirdos? <laughs> I, I don't want to present it as being like a horrendous... I wouldn't do it. If it was really, really problematic, I wouldn't be able to do it. I really love working in Westminster. I love the people I'm surrounded by. The level of camaraderie when you are... Because you are a bit in a foxhole with people who only understand what that life is like, regardless of which political rosette they wear. There is a level of of real camaraderie that you rarely get in other sort of workplaces. I don't want to present that it's some sort of den of iniquity. I'm not scared when I'm there. And there's a, a huge amount been written about sort of sexual violence and sexual harassment and bad bullying and things like that that have gone on in Westminster. And, I, you know, I'm in a privileged position in Westminster, so I don't suffer from those things. But, I mean, I know that they happen and I support lots and lots of women and men who they have happened to. But you are fundamentally reminded of your place in the system on a regular basis. And that is incredibly irritating. Like, if you try and change anything in Westminster you will immediately face this sort of arcane backlash about how all things have gone too far, like women make up sexual harassment claims. We're the kind of people that they're going to attack because, you know, we've got power. That's what they're coming for. They're coming for their power and their money. And I hear that sort of stuff all the time. And it's just like, oh, God, have you ever thought that women come forward here because you are really powerful people and therefore you're much more likely to abuse that power than your average Joe? It's tiring more than it is aggressive, I would say, for me. But I'm much, I mean, the truth be told, I am much more aggressive than 99%. <laughs> yes, that is refreshing yeah, I, to hear, yeah. Jeff. Yeah, I don't take any shit from anyone. <laughs> but what I find is the thing that will kill most women like me in that system is just so, it's so tedious and so tiring to try and even get the standards of sort of safeguarding in place that would exist in any other public sector workforce. It's just, it's like you're trying to rip out the liberties of the elected representative class. And it's just like, oh God, man, just trying to stop people groping people at work. You're making out like, I'm suggesting indentured (laughs) labor. I'm just suggesting like, don't touch up your Mm. staff and then expect no one to moan about it. But yes, yeah, so it's very, very tiring. It's very, very tiring work environment to fight for your constituents and be told by people who will never live the lives that they have lived or even meet or befriend. I have to explain to people about access to education and things 
to people I know would never let their child marry one of my children or be in a class with them. They wouldn't live on the street I live in. That can be incredibly tedious and tiring to have to sort of beg for better from like a master class. It can get incredibly tiring. But, you know, the current Prime Minister of the United Kingdom wouldn't dream of sending his children to the school my children go to. He wouldn't even know it existed. Do you know what I mean? He lives on a different plane to the one I live on. He wouldn't dream. And were one of his children wanting to fraternise with one of mine, it wouldn't be good enough, would they? Do you know what I mean? Like, and you know, that that is tiring. That is tiring environment to work in. Now, if you were to put that to them, they'd say, absolutely not. That's not the case. Of course, that's not the case. But, you know, we all learn our place in this world. And I know that that is the case. It's very, very tiring when you're trying to fight something you really believe in, that you are emotional about, that is personal to you, that it's very, very, very tiring. I'm mindful that we're talking on the day that Jacinda Ardern has stood down from her role as the Prime Minister of New Zealand. And it's very, very, very sad, but also the level of leadership shown by her in her leaving is... I've never seen anything that could ever compare. Being as, you know, the last two prime ministers in the United Kingdom that resigned, one resigned after 44 days of an absolute binfire, and the other one said, hasta la vista. So it's quite the comparator, isn't it, that this amazing woman just doesn't think that she's got enough in the tank? Like, what a thing. And it's tiring, is so tiring and that's the thing I think that women in any particular industry that is largely male dominated that is built on patriarchal norms and that's the vast majority of industry it's the media whether it's the you know politics whether it's banking whatever it is the vast majority is built by men for men over the years notwithstanding some very brilliant men trying to change that. And you have to do so much more labour, so much more work. It's a bit like when in the Black Lives Matter movement, it just became really tiring for black people to have to explain it to everybody, like to have to constantly explain yourself and why you're fighting for the thing you're fighting for, when to you it just seems so obvious (laughs) that I should be able to make a decision about my own womb that I shouldn't expect to be raped in my home. Like, just seems so obvious to me that it becomes, like, you can't explain it without becoming just so tired, saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's a bit like being a parent, though, so I'm (laughs) well-trained, because I can just be replaced with a tape that said, where's your shoes? Where are your shoes? Where have you put your shoes? Can you not leave your shoes in the hall? I'm basically just like a one-woman Hitler about (laughs) shoes. So uh, barring having a tape recorder of yourself to repeat the same message, what keeps you going? Change keeps me going. Change and hope. Like I have changed things. Nowhere near as much as I would have wanted to, but change. Uh, Also, I deal with people who are, you know, think I'm tired, people who have lived through total calamity, watched their mothers be murdered in front of them, lost their children, have been brutally trafficked for 10 years, forced to have sex with 100 men a day. And they come into my office and we laugh. People think we run a really sad ship, but we don't at all. It's like those people, often the story of the survivor, certainly in violence against women and girls, is one of, she came through it all and she set up a business. And it's like, you know, the vast majority of survivors I meet are just ordinary people who laugh at the same things as you laugh at, regardless of their terrible crises, they'll take the piss. That's what keeps me going, is that like, they get up every morning, like I can keep going because they get up every morning. And I don't know how some of these people raise their head off a pillow let alone bother to make it the way to my office to try and change something for other people. They've got no chance to change it for themselves. The terrible abuse has happened. Their kid is dead. They can't change that and they bother to get up and come and see me. So they massively keep me going. Like I live a completely non-political life as well and live completely separately to it. My husband's never read a book I've written, never really watches me on the television. I live a separate life. We are normal human beings. My children don't give a toss about any of it. I live three streets away from where I was born and all of my family and friends live around me. I have a different world and a different perspective that is about strictly come dancing and 
dancing to 90s R&B on a Friday night that I wouldn't be able to cope if it weren't for that. I wouldn't keep going. It would be too tiring. But life has fun asides, doesn't it? Like my life has magical moments in it, just like everybody else's. It's not all work. And I think that sometimes women are expected to present as if all they do is work. Certainly since COVID, I work a lot less than I used to. I actually take time and do fun stuff. I don't watch documentaries about violence against women and girls. I watch the Bake Off. <laughs> oh, God, love the Bake Off, the British institution. Lovely. Well, I'm glad you have that balance. I think that's, you know, that's really important to be able to do the work that you're doing but still be able to enjoy your life. Yeah, sometimes I'm really lazy and I put things <laughs> up. Look, I, you know, I hate this idea that sort of women have to be presented as being really perfect. I am idle quite a lot of the time. I play a huge amount of New York Times quizzes on my phone. Wordle? Are you into Wordle? I, I, I'm big on Wordle, but Spelling Bee is where my... I, I absolutely... I love spelling bee. I do it every single day. Uh, you know, I, I would sooner do that than feed my children. It is a higher priority. <laughs> I have to complete it every single day. I love it. So we're coming up to the end of our time here, but I just wanted to talk to our listeners for a minute. And you have this call for involvement in your book. You know, politics is personal. Now is the time more than ever to get involved. So kind of a, a two-parter. One is what you might say to someone about considering running for office because, you know, the idea of getting into politics scares the shit out of most people. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. So, so anything you, you might say to anyone tossing around the idea or not, and then also just kind of more generally speaking, as we've said about the power is in our hands and by not voting, by not getting involved, we're just kind of letting the status quo go on and the people who have always had power remain. So what I would say to somebody thinking of getting involved in politics is first and foremost, especially women, I would say, you think that you're not good enough, you should just spend 20 minutes watching any day of the House of Commons <laughs> to disavow yourself of that view. You think you're not good enough, then just pop in. It's pretty poor standard. People are terrified of public speaking, and so was I. I used to have to take beta blockers when I first had to do it when I was a kid, when I was a student, and it's just practice. Like anything, you can practice to be better at this. What I would say is you do have to be quite hard. You do have to be nailed, and you do have to accept that there's a certain level of acceptance of some that it's tough and people will be vile and that one day you'll get your comeuppance, but don't try and get it every five minutes would be my advice because you just won't make it there if you take sort of eternal offence at everything. Uh, don't take eternal offence at everything. Just take it on a systematic basis. I would say absolutely, if you are even considering it, you're halfway there, do it because it is a privilege to have power and don't be afraid to try and grab power. It's not a bad thing to want to grab power and be more powerful, especially women want to be more powerful. Don't let people tell you that your power is only your sexuality. Like that is what we've been told since the beginning of time. It's not, it's not, it's not, you know, whilst you have to be tough and people will be vile to you, there's no two ways about that. Don't do it if you are expecting everyone to love you. Do it if you enjoy the that lots of people don't like you. <laughs> I really enjoy that. But what I would say more generally is that nothing good that you have in your life was not delivered to you by just some ordinary person sat in a dusty room at the back of a church or in the canteen at work and thought, this isn't good enough. Every single thing, the weekend, was delivered to you by people annoyed. <laughs> but they didn't have a weekend. You know, in China, there is no weekend. It's wild. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no weekend. You could live without a weekend. That was <gasps> delivered to you by two people sat having a cup of tea in a canteen somewhere in a factory or like, you know, on a farm and going, do you know, it'd be really nice if we just had a couple of days off and didn't have to work. <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? Right. So like that was just like some dudes not powerful people women having the vote was just like church halls full of women going 
it doesn't seem right that we don't get a say. Don't put these people who did these things onto some massive pedestal. They are just like you. And if you wait around for the thing you want changing for someone else to do it, it might have meant to be you. Yeah. You know, Rosa Parks didn't go, someone else will sit up on this bus. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Somebody else will probably make this argument and start the entire civil rights movement. It's probably you. If you really feel strongly about something and want to change it, it's probably you who's going to do it. It's not magical. Doreen Lawrence, who took on the entire policing in the UK and got it to prove that it was fundamentally racist. She like worked in a bank. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, she was just a woman. <laughs> just a woman who had a terrible thing happen to her and thought, I'm not going to put up with this. Ordinary people change the world all the time. And yet for some reason, we don't think that we can. Every change that ever happened was just because some woman or some man just went, oh, it'd be nice to have a day off. Don't overthink it. Go about changing it. You probably can. Most people do. Love it. Absolutely love it. The power is in our hands. And you know what? I think right now, you know, we've got the weekend. Now we're pushing for a three-day weekend. This is the newest. Let's let's go for it. <laughs> Why stop at three? I'm going four. Yeah, 50-50. Yeah, I could do spelling bait all day long. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. It has been so nice to chat with you, Jess Phillips. Thank you so much for your time and for all of your fantastic work. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and think that we need more of women's stories in the world, be sure to share with a friend and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help us beat those pesky algorithms. Follow us on socials for more content from the episodes and a look behind the scenes. And for access to bonus content and ad-free listening, consider becoming a patron of the podcast. This is the best way to help me continue to put out more and better episodes. Or you can buy me a metaphorical coffee. All of this goes directly into production costs. And in exchange, you'll receive my eternal gratitude and a good night's sleep, knowing that you are helping to finally change the story of mankind to the story of humankind. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Anna Steckline. It was edited by Maddie Searle, with communication support by Joe Cummings. A special thanks to Amanda Brown, Kate York, and Dan Kendall for their ongoing production support and invaluable advising. Tune into the next episode of The Story of Woman, where I speak with Nobel Peace Prize winner Tawakal Karman. She's known as the mother of the revolution, the Iron Woman, and the Lady of the Arab Spring for the key roles she played in the 2011 pro-democracy uprisings in Yemen. Behind every great revolution, there is a brave woman. There are many brave women. I'm so proud to be one of those women that make changes in their countries and in the world. This is the most dangerous and the most important war and duty for women to fulfill. And a special thanks to our Patreon collaborators, Veronica Linares from Values Leadership Consulting, transforming mindsets to put humanity and the planet at the heart of leadership. Christine Beasy from Untangle Money, creators of financial plans designed specifically for women. Dr. Julie Allig of JLA Analytics, your data's talking, are you listening? Joanna Cummings, editor of the Grub Street Journal, the magazine for people who make magazines. Jill Quigley from The Giving Grove, Little Orchards, Big Impact, a nationwide network of little orchards. Andrew Planet, advocate for naming our species human rather than man, and for joint matrilineal surnames. To share your name, business, or message at the end of every episode, sign up to be a patron of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash the story of woman. Get your message out there, listen to bonus content, and rest well, knowing that you're doing your part in helping to elevate the story of woman.